Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about LGBT issues in cancer with Amber Anders and Herbert Castillo. They're both first-year students at Yale School of Medicine, and here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourselves, um, your path to medical school, and what kind of got you interested in this topic. Amber, how about we start with you? Uh, Absolutely. Um, So (laughs) I was just talking to Herbert about this. I kind of came to medicine from a somewhat of a convoluted path. I was interested in astrophysics, (laughs) uh, which doesn't seem to be too medically related, uh, but I started doing research through that and always interested in the sciences, which led me to biomedical research. And through that, I learned more about medicine and how it can really actually impact lives. I really love astrophysics still and read up on it, but uh, being in biomedical research and the medical end of things just seemed much more tangible and I could really make a difference in people's lives. So that's how I got into medicine. Okay, Herbert, how about you? Yeah, for me, it was a very personal motivation. Um, So I was born in Guatemala, and at age 11, we decided, my whole family decided to immigrate to the United States um, to just have a better life, like most immigrants come to this country for. And uh, we just had a lot of barriers to healthcare. We had a lot of um, just, for example, language barriers, but also just a lack of uh, medical insurance and a lot of other barriers. So for me, uh, my early experiences um, with uh, health inequalities really drive me to become a, a physician. So it sounds like both of you, uh, for various reasons, get into medical school. Uh, you're now finishing up your first year. You know, the whole concept of of LGBT rights is a very hot topic um, and is very relevant, I think, in medicine, but not something that a lot of people think about. Um, So how did both of you get interested in that topic, Amber? Uh, Absolutely. So I hadn't done much research related to the topic before coming to medical school, but my brother actually identifies as LGBT. And so through that, I was always interested in the different medical needs that he had. Um, And by working with you over the summer, I actually had the opportunity to participate in research that involved that community. Um, So that was my first time really working with data sets that had that information, which I think we'll get into a little bit later. But um, that's one of the hardest parts of doing research on this community is there's really a lack of information to even try to study um, some of the disparities that we see because most surveys and questionnaires don't even address or allow people to identify that part of their demographic. And Herbert, what about you? Yeah, so I come from a background of doing research and being really interested in contemporary Latino health issues. Um, But I always saw the disconnect between doing racial disparities um, work and also doing LGBT uh, disparities. So there was a a very big disconnect between both uh, populations, and I saw that missing link. So I really want to make sure that in my research I want to do 
be aware of the intersectionality that a lot of patients have, both being Latino and queer LGBT. I see. So let's talk a little bit more about the experiences that you've had and and some of the research um, that you've done and um, and where you think we should really be moving the field. Both of you have talked a little bit about disparities, and, and so I think that that was likely a driver. But Amber, you, you mentioned uh, some of the research you did in the summer before you started med school. Uh, that's a program uh, at Yale called START. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what that is uh, for those who might not be aware of it? Absolutely. Um, So it's an opportunity that Yale offers its first year incoming students, medical students, to participate in research um, the summer before they start medical school. Um, So I had already taken time, two years off um, between undergrads, so I was just ready to get here, get my feet on the ground, and it was a great opportunity to get research um, started before school even started and gave me the opportunity to attend conferences and other things, to make posters. Uh, I actually just returned. I haven't shared this with you yet, but I went to the Student National Medical Association um, annual conference two weekends ago, and I won Best National Poster in the Social Sciences. Um, The poster I presented was related to um, the part of the project discussing uh, what factors actually go into a patient's decision to disclose their sexual orientation or gender identity with their healthcare provider. Excellent. Excellent. You see, I, too, learn things on this show. (laughs) Breaking news. You heard it here first. Um, Herbert, how about you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you've been doing and how how that got started? Yeah. So I I actually also uh, participated in the start at Yale uh, summer experience here before the, the first year started. And through that, I worked at the Equity Research, uh, Equity and Innovation Research Center here at Yale, uh, or ERIC. And um, there I did a very self-directed project about uh, patient quality of, uh, patients' perceptions of quality of care uh, among Latino um, respondents. And yeah, I just enjoyed doing that. I had already done a lot of uh, the similar work in my undergrad. So it was just amazing to come here and find that, that place to do my research. So so let's talk a little bit more about your actual projects and um, why you chose to look at the questions that you did and what was the driving force behind that. Um, and then tell us a little bit about uh, the results uh, of your study. So, Amber, how about you go first? Absolutely. Um, so kind of starting out working with you, Dr. Chagpar, um, thinking about cancer and cancer disparities, um, we talk a lot about the LGBT community and how it's under, um, you know, researched and a lot, not a lot of research um, right now is currently addressing the many issues that they face. And so the first thing that I thought was important to really ask is, you know, how is this information actually shared with providers in the first place? So before we can even get to, you know, HPV vaccinations, which was the next project, um, we really need to know our, you know, is this community comfortable sharing this information with their providers? What factors are related to that? And so what we actually found using um, a prospective web-based survey that surveyed almost close to, I think, 600 respondents we had um, from various LGBT uh, communities across the country, what we found the two most in, um, or some of the most important things in terms of disclosing your orientation, the most important factor was level of education. Um, and we found that people that had only completed high school or less were much less likely 
about only 25% of the time going to disclose that information with their health care provider. In contrast to people that had at least some college, about 75% of the time they would share that information. So that's just one example of, you know, when we're working as physicians and we have patients in our office, knowing kind of their background, where they're coming from, that's one of the things we can use to address some of the disparities we see and knowing that, you know, this person's level of education, they might identify as LGBT, but might not know the importance of sharing this information how it can you know better impact their health care that we give them. Um, so that was one of the important things we saw. And additionally, age was an interesting thing to look at in the study in terms of disclosing sexual orientation. Um, I wasn't sure which way it would come out in terms of, um, you know, where older people more likely to disclose or not. And so what we found is the younger um, the uh, individual, the less likely they are to disclose. So I think that's another important thing to think about uh, healthcare providers that provide care for adolescents, teenagers, um, young adults, um, they might not be as comfortable disclosing that information. So that's another important factor to think about. And so, uh, Herbert, your your project really focused on on quality of care and Mm -hmm. perceptions of quality of care. Tell us more about about that. Yeah, so more and more we're finding that uh, perceptions of quality of care uh, reported by patients are a good measurement of uh, eventually health outcomes for them. So um, in my study, I really wanted to dissect um, the differences and the variability between in, in, within the, the term Latino um, when it comes to reporting poor quality of care. So having received uh, an event in, in the clinic that, that was perceived as poor quality. Um, and we, I just wanted to dissect that because a lot of the times we see the term Latino as a homogenous kind of general term that we then... Uh, give conclusions to for for policy or implications that that are going to serve this community, but we we're not addressing the variability within it. So um, I really wanted to see country of origin because that's one of the one of the variabilities that is rarely performed in in these data analyses. Um, and I found very significant results. Uh, so for example, uh, Mexican and Salvadoran respondents are less likely to have received poor quality of care. Um, as opposed to a lot of other nationalities. And when it comes to attributing poor quality of care uh, for uh, due to th- their race, Puerto Rican responses, uh, responders are less likely to to attribute that to, to race, poor quality of care to race. So there's a lot of dissection. Unfortunately, um, the data set that I used, and which is a really big uh, data set for, for Latino health surveys, uh, it's the 2007 Pew Hispanic Research Center, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Latino Healthcare Survey doesn't have any um, demographics relating to gender identity or sexual orientation. So if I wanted to really dissect that and adjust for um, sexuality, sexual orientation, gender identity, I wasn't able to. And time and time and again, I discussed this with Amber. That's one of the big barriers that we have um, when, when talking about LGBT healthcare. And that might go back to, Amber, your point, which is, you know, some people just don't disclose. So even if there was an electronic medical record that could exactly. capture this information, and many of them don't, um, if people don't don't disclose this information to their doctors, uh, it's really difficult to capture that information and then to potentially tailor uh, care uh, accordingly. So, Amber, this goes back to the question of so what? So, so people disclose or they don't disclose. How does that affect uh, the quality of their healthcare experience? I mean... 
Absolutely. I think one important thing going forward, especially to address, I think in the past there's been a lot of stigma um, associated with that identification and with that um, people didn't want to disclose because they thought maybe they would, would, would receive worse care or no care at all. But I think the field has definitely evolved in terms of physicians that want to be allies, that want to provide this care. I think our class alone, we've had several um, sessions on, you know, for example, if you're working with a transgender patient, how to ask them for what pronouns they prefer, things of that nature. So I think we're more equipped to handle these populations as patients. However, um, one way, uh, the second part of my study looked at HPV vaccination rates. And that's one good example. Um, when the vaccine first came out, it was really targeted towards females. Um, and with that, you would see kind of like a herd immunity and the fact that if all females are vaccinated, that would protect both males and females. However, that leaves out the whole population of um, males that identify as homosexual and don't neither one of the partners have the vaccine, then there's no protection for either one of them. Um, so disclosing that information with a healthcare provider um, would help to make sure that these individuals are getting vaccinated. And currently, uh, standard recommendations are for all males and females to be vaccinated. But we know that um, women are about four times more likely to receive the vaccine than males. And so that's just an overall population thing. But it's especially important for uh, males that identify as gay to get vaccinated because they're not getting that herd immunity or protection. Um, and so that's one of the important ways of disclosing this information with your doctor could actually improve your health care and lessen the risk we see for um, HPV-related cancers and ideally um, help address some of the cancer disparities we see in this population. Yeah, and, and certainly HPV vaccination is important both to men and women, whether you're straight or or uh, gay or lesbian. Um, we're going to take a short break uh, for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more information about LGBT issues and cancer uh, with our medical students today, Amber and Herbert. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut alone this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the one at Yale and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve the management of the disease by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in a more patient-specific treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Amber and Herbert. Both of these young people are medical students at Yale University, and both have taken an interest in LGBT healthcare care uh, in this population. You know, one of the things that we talked about during the break uh, was that we've been using this acronym LGBT quite a bit. Um, and yet many of our listeners may not understand that term, uh, the distinction between sexual identity, uh, gender orientation, uh, what is queer. I know, Herbert, you you mentioned that term. Mm -hmm. um, 
can can either of you kind of uh, give us a little bit of a framework in order to think about this population? Absolutely. Um, That's one thing I definitely wanted to talk about during this show. Um, You know, we use the acronym LGBT, LGBTI, LGBTQI, um, a whole slew of letters. However, um, before I even did this research, I don't think I made a distinction among the group. I just, you know, used the term LGBT and grouped everyone into a nice pretty box with a bow that I think everyone likes to do. But there's a lot of variation within this. And one of the big things is to kind of tease apart the idea of someone's sexual orientation, which is what they prefer in a partner and in relationships versus gender identity. And that's more of a personal how they identify um, with their gender. And separating those two because they actually have very distinct medical needs. Um, If you think about someone that's transgendered, um, they may, you know, want to transition or think about hormone therapy. Like there's a whole different set of needs that those individuals have as opposed to with sexual orientation. Um, You know, there's different needs there um, in terms of, you know, maybe dealing with behavioral or mental health, um, especially if there's like a non-supportive family or a whole other, all the issues that come with that, that um, people in this community deal with. And I think that's important to kind of understand that those are very different and um, different issues come along with both of those that aren't always the same and overlapping. And so it's nice to use the acronym LGBT, but also to think about the individuals and their needs, um, especially in a healthcare setting important. Yeah. Herbert, do you want to talk a little bit about this other term that's now been thrown into the mix of, of queer? Uh, many people may think that they they don't want to use that term because they feel that that might be a, a slur. Right. So I feel like um, queer is a more, uh, it's a term that has been reclaimed by a lot of activists uh, throughout the LGBT movement. And I feel like queer uh, can be a very um, broad term that can include a lot of people and not not necessarily describe a lot of the experiences. So I think a lot of people that identify as queer don't necessarily want to be boxed in the label of gay or lesbian or bisexual, you know. Um, uh, I think it's also coming from an understanding that sexual orientation and gender identity is also very fluid. Um, so I think it's more uh, acceptable nowadays to to self-identify square. So, you know, we talked a little bit before the break about disclosure uh, and the fact that many people don't disclose. And, and one of the, the issues is we're trying to unwrap the, the medical issues uh, associated with this population is that we often don't know who this population is unless we have that conversation. So, how do you recommend that healthcare providers start that conversation or conversely how patients might disclose without feeling uncomfortable? Have you thought about that? Um, I actually have. And being first year med students, we've been learning the process of just taking a proper history. And honestly, there's lots of parts of the taking a per- or, uh, uh, past history that are uncomfortable. You ask about many things in a person's life. And I think the most important thing going into is just don't make any assumptions. Don't, you know, just assume that someone has a wife or that someone is married or um, any of those things. Just go in without any assumptions. And honestly, we're all humans. I think just having a conversation um, with an individual and making them feel like it's a safe space, I think, is the most important thing. Um, one thing, just, you know, interacting with people in the community is what I've seen um, in my experience 
experience is usually there's maybe one or two go-to um, general practitioners in a particular community, and the entire LGBT community in that city will go to those one or two. And my you know, hope would be to expand that and not just burden these one or two individuals with a whole community and really have more physicians be on board to help and be advocates and allies and feel comfortable treating um, LGBT um, individuals and feeling that they can properly assess the care that they need. Um, so that's my idea, hopefully going forward, would be to expand, you know, not just burden one or two doctors in an entire city with all of the LGBT community. So having, you know, fluid and open conversations, no assumptions, and definitely creating a safe space, especially for younger um, people that don't want to necessarily disclose or feel comfortable. It's, it's giving that safe environment is key. Yeah. Herbert? Yeah, and I think also understanding the positive outcomes of disclosure as well, right? Um, we talked a little bit about how uh, cancer affects, or we haven't really talked about how cancer affects LGBT um, indivi- individuals, but it they're in a unique position. So I'm reflecting back about learning uh, the differences of uh, outcomes of uh, prostate cancer between a heterosexual male and a, uh, and a uh, male who has sex with uh, other males. So in in that case, we can tease apart how different prostate cancer can be for for a man who has sex with other men, because we know that it is going to affect his sexual functioning in other in 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 a very unique way that is probably not going to affect the heterosexual man. So if that's if that disclosure is not made, I feel like. Um, all the, that intricacy that we can explain to to that patient is going to be lost, mm-hmm. um, and we really need to make sure um, to outline that disclosure is going to bring about positive uh, health uh, advice and really support um, for our LGBT patients. Yeah, uh, I I couldn't agree with you more. You know, we talked, uh, Amber, you mentioned a little bit earlier about transgender uh, individuals who are making a transition and uh, the use of hormones that can help you to do that um, and how hormones really affect your cancer risk. Um, uh, so, again, disclosure is, is really important. And I think that, you know, there there are a lot of ways for healthcare providers to kind of give people the signal that they're open and welcoming, um, you know, whether it's having a, a rainbow flag in their waiting room or uh, being on the list of LGBT leaders in healthcare from the Human Rights Commission. I think um, it, it certainly is is really important. So, Amber, what do you think are, are still the burning needs for this population? What work? I mean, Clearly, there is much that needs to be done in terms of research and moving the field forward in a population that has been understudied. What do you think are the burning platform issues that we need to address? Um, so I think one thing is really, um, you know, I, as I mentioned before, there used to be a lot of stigma and more a negative sense, um, I think, that was perceived in the healthcare field. But now I think it's more so people are afraid of the unknown and, you know, not sure they can provide adequate care. So I think it's despairing those really giving, especially medical students early in our education, the proper tools to help these individuals um, is really important. And honestly, I think the power of the media, even though we're talking about 
you know, medicine and healthcare. Um, one person I talk about her all the time, Laverne Cox. Um, she's on a popular Netflix show and has had um, a great career so far as an actress, but she's really come out um, at the forefront of one of the leading voices for transgendered individuals. Um, recently was actually this week named um, in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of the Year. And having powerful role models like that for individuals, she spoke to the fact that I think a lot of people that identify as LGBT um, can identify with when you're not in a large city with lots of resources, you can feel very isolated. And I think with the power of the internet and the media, having people like her on the covers of magazines and speaking at different events can be very powerful in just transforming um, our society as a whole. And I think that will hopefully spill over into healthcare and um, kind of dispel some of those other um, just stereotypes that have existed. And so I think, you know, using those things to advantage, having speakers like her, you know, speak more towards healthcare needs and um, issues, I think would be great. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I think that um, also coming together in your professional networks and discussing this, right, I feel like recently um, in my professional network, the Latino Medical Student Association, along with the National Hispanic uh, Medical Association and other um, kind of Latino health uh, organizations came together to to write up a resolution um, really looking at the discrimination of Latino LGBTQ patients and also having clear, concrete steps that that are going to make sure to bridge those gaps that we have, those disparities that, that Latino LGBT patients still uh, experience. Yeah, I, I think the the role of celebrity and the role of of really making sure that we address these disparities is, is so critical. I mean, even if we take a step back from uh, transgender individuals, but even, you know, right now, the political attention that's being paid to gay marriage and uh, gay rights uh, is so powerful uh, and due to a lot to celebrities who have come out and said, you know what? Uh, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, and I'm human and deserve the rights uh, of everybody else. And when I'm sick, I want my partner uh, to uh, to be there with me. Um, so it, it's so critical for what we do in terms of patient and family-centered care, no matter how you define your family. Tell me a bit more about where you're taking your research and where you think we really need to focus in the coming years. I mean, both of you as first-year medical students have done phenomenal work uh, so far. I mean, in your first year, and the first year isn't even over yet. But where are you going to take your research, Amber? Um, So I'm actually participating in a program at Massachusetts General over the summer, and it's going to be looking at endometrial cancers. And actually, Herb and I, again, were having this conversation before we're both going to be using um, a similar database, the SEER database, looking at cancer. And so mine is actually looking at cancer disparities in the Latino population for females with endometrial cancers. And I ran into the same problem of there's actually no, I would love to do the same analyses, but looking at LGBT communities, but the data is not there. And so I think one of my things going forward, I really want to advocate for is getting this demographic information onto more surveys and questionnaires, because I I think that's one of the reasons we see the disparities that we do because proper and adequate research just can't be done because the information's not even there to work with it. So I think hopefully um, 
and still doing my project at MGH, but also trying to see if I can um, work to get that incorporated into some of these databases and go from there would be ideal. But I really want to advocate for really trying to get this information out there and then also on the tail end of it, get people that are getting these surveys and questionnaires to feel comfortable with sharing that information. So it's kind of a two-sided uh, platform that I want to achieve. Great. And Herbert? Yeah, so I'm going to be sticking around here for the summer. I'm going to be working at in the endocrine section of the surgery department and doing, again, database, database analysis. Again, we were talking um, with Amber, and, and SEER is the, more comprehens- the most comprehensive repository for all this data. So the fact that, the, that SEER doesn't have this is really limiting our analyses. Um, again, I'm going to be conducting uh, thyroid uh, surgery, uh, thyroid cancer surgery uh, refusal um, analyses. So uh, I wish I had that data too. Yeah, yeah. because it, it, it certainly may influence how patients uh, perceive uh, their health care, perceive their health care experience. You know, good news for both of you is that um, – the National Health Interview Survey, we hope, uh, will be including at least some measures of sexual orientation in the upcoming uh, surveys. Uh, it, the NHIS is the largest repository of health information, but unlike SEER, really doesn't drill down into cancer information, which is uh, so important and, and certainly what many of us have used to try to tease out some of these epidemiological trends. I guess the other question is, you know, how do we start looking at the biologic implications um, of of people's uh, uh, gender orientation? We have less than a minute left, but Amber, any any final closing comments? And, and Herbert, uh, in 30 seconds, what you want our listeners to remember? Um, I guess just going forward, uh, I really want to you know, help address the disparities that we didn't really go into great details on the disparities seen in the community, but they exist. And um, LGBT communities, they're, you know, there are a lot of issues to be addressed there, and I think we need more people like Herbert and I that want to um, fight for this and research this and make it important, and I think institutions supporting that is the greatest thing. We need we need more institutional support in doing this. All right. Yeah, just understanding the intricacies of LGBTQ life and also creating more action-oriented research that has implication for health outcomes for this very vulnerable population. Herbert Castillo and Amber Anders are first-year students at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.